1: After the assassination of the Duke of Buckingham a new court clique had to be organized and this new clique consisted basically of three people, three people plus of course King Charles himself. First was the Queen Henrietta Maria we've already commented on her. She had been uh, somewhat alienated from the king by Buckingham but after his death she patched things up and she began to play again quite a prominent role in the uh, leading group second in command i would say was a man by the name we've come across him before sir thomas wentworth you will perhaps remember that uh, last time we came across him he was one of the leading opponents of the king a very capable man a very good speaker, very intelligent tactician, and so on, strong man, also strong willed, uh, who had been bought off by the, the king. The king and his, and his uh, agents were quite skillful at this, you know, they would catch hold of a, 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 a rebel. I think they still do this in parliament to the present day, I believe. Any uh, promising looking, intelligent, uh, strong willed uh, militant in Parliament would be immediately surrounded to his great surprise in the bar of the House of Commons these days by uh, the enemy who would praise him and pat him on the back and buy him a drink and so on and say how well he spoke, didn't agree with everything, surely he was a little bit exaggerated, but there you are, nobody's perfect, this kind of thing. Until gradually you get involved in dinners and uh, other invitations, You, you move further up the scale until finally you, you, you're given certain uh, rewards invited to become uh, a shareholder and so on until eventually you get to meet the big man himself which uh, happened with uh, Thomas Wentworth. Thomas uh, and these people of course they, they're very uh, good psych- psychologists they they immediately understand that somebody's an an egotist and they flatter his e- ego and what greater uh, flattering could there be than to be ushered into the presence of the great man, of King Charles himself, who to, uh, probably to to Wentworth's astonishment, offers him one of the uh, plum jobs, one of the top jobs in this new dictatorship, because that's what it was, the 11-year tyranny was a dictatorship. No parliament, no democracy. The rule of uh, a tiny clique led by the king. And he offered him a plum job. The president of the Council of York, no less, and that was quite a plunge. There was a lot of money to be uh, gained from being put in virtually dictatorial charge of the whole of the north of England with its revenues and so on. So uh, it didn't take uh, Wentworth long to, to, to choose which side he was on. And once he joined the king, then he, from becoming an outspoken opponent of the king, he became an outs, outspoken defender of the king and the monarchical cause until his death. And, of course, his his politics eventually, his choice eventually led to his death. But that's another story for a future episode. Thomas Wentworth. Subsequently, the king sent him to Ireland. I think it was in 1633 or 34. I can't remember. He was sent to Ireland, which which was in a state of turbulence at the time. A lot of disorder and turbulence, which I haven't got time to deal with. we will deal with it in a future episode. But he, he was sent to, to, to get Ireland under control and above all to get some money out of Ireland. Charles you see, was still in, in it, with difficulties economically, he wanted to raise cash. And this episode will deal with how he raised cash. Wentworth was, was quite successful. In fact, he was promoted to a new role. He became the uh, Earl of Stafford. and well, Stafford rather, and, and, that, and, and that of course, will be the, the way in which he will be referred to in future. He was the the king's second-hand man, right-hand man, in effect. Uh, And he was so successful in Ireland at uh, squeezing money out of the natives, all of them rich and poor alike, he earned the nickname of, uh, what was it, uh, Black Tom Tyrant. Tells you a little bit. Tells you all you need to know about uh, this gentleman. The next uh, member of the clique is perhaps the most important of all, the most decisive. William Lord, at the time that we uh, we meet him first, he's the Archbishop of London, although he's risen, risen quite, it's been a, a meteoric rise. He came from very humble uh, origins. I think his father was a clothier in uh, in Reading, if I'm not mistaken. But humble, a humble background, same as Woolsey in the past, he was the son of a butcher. He rose to be to the dizzying heights, first of all, our Archbishop of London where his right-wing views, his pro-Catholic leanings and so on earned him the the plaudits of the Queen and the King. He became a close confidant of the King and Queen and subsequently in in, uh, 1633 precisely, that was the date when Stafford, Stafford was being sent off to Ireland, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury no less, the top man. The man in charge of the entire Church of England, with all its thousands and thousands of ministers and bishops and properties and money and luxury and so on and so on, he took over, and it was Lord that launched a series of uh, fundamental reforms with the full support of the King, of course, uh, of uh, of the Church of England. He was a, very much a man in favour of the hierarchical system a tyrannical hierarchy. In fact, you could say that he was responsible for transforming the Church of England into a a mirror image of the dictatorship of the uh, 11 years tyranny. You had the hierarchy of the uh, secular wing under the control of the court, clique and the king, and you had a, a parallel hierarchy, a tyrannical, a very tyrannical hierarchy of the Church of England which in effect was like a parallel state. It was linked. You couldn't separate. Nobody could say in those days where the the state ceased and where the uh, Church of England began, it was the same. And Charles was under no illusions about that. You know, you you remove the bishops. I think his father said that, James. You remove no bishops. He said, no bishops, no king. I think James said that. And Charles uh, took it very much to heart. So in Lord, he had a man of absolute confidence, a man he could trust, a complete dictator, a man with very rigid views, very authoritarian, who was determined to ensure to stamp out all opposition in the church. The as Charles was determined to stamp out all opposition in the state. He wanted to, uh, everyone to conform to his views of what Anglicanism ought to be. Which didn't bear much relation to the original conception that the Church had traditionally had, and he introduced a series of reforms and innovations, which, by the way, were complete anathema to the Puritans, to the uh, mass of the population. Actually, regarded these uh, these innovations. But I'll say something about that in a moment. And he ruled with a rod of iron anyone that crossed him in any way, the slightest degree, anyone that expressed the slightest opposition or criticism of his reforms would be immediately uh, sent before a council, deprived, stripped of their office, stripped of their uh, bishopric or uh, removed from the church, if not uh, sent to them to prison and punished in more severe ways. So that was quite uh, a serious uh, state of interest. And under law, the church was gradually being... <laughs> Reverted, reverted, if you like to type, to, to Roman Catholicism. All of a sudden, the churches became full of stained glass windows and uh, statues and images of the saints, things which the Reformation had done away with, and year was Lord. Introducing all of these things, of course, uh, it greatly pleased uh, both the Queen and the King, who was actually uh, suspected, I think rightly so, of strong pro-Catholic uh, tendencies and there's very little doubt about it that the Lord wanted the uh, wanted uh, the ch- the church to revert to, to to return to Rome I think I've got quite a, an amusing an amusing little uh, comment here somewhere let me see where are we now well first of all here's an example this is from from the historian uh, David Hume bad philosopher very bad philosopher not a bad historian from a bourgeois point of view, but there you are. Um, this is a description of, of how Lord conducted himself inside the church. And I quote, As he approached the communion t- table, he made many lowly reverences. He bowed down, in other words. And coming up to that part of the table, where the bread and wine lay, he bowed seven times, seven times no less. After the uh, the reading, of many prayers he approached the sacramental elements and gently lifted up the corner of the, of the napkin in which the bread had been placed. Like a theatre, isn't it? When he beheld the bread, he beheld this bit of bread, it's Christ's body, of course. When he beheld the bread, he suddenly let fall the napkin, flew back a step or two, bowed three several times towards the bread, which, of course, was the body of Christ, uh, made made material. And then he drew nigh again, he drew close again, opened the napkin, and bowed as before. He must have had a bad back from so much bowing, I should think. Next, he laid his hand upon the cup, which had a cover upon it, and was filled with wine, communion wine. He let go the cup, fell back, and bowed twice twice towards it. You must get tired of bowing this chap. He approached again and lifting up the cover, peeped into the cup. Seeing the wine, now he sees the wine, seeing the wine, he let fall the cover, started back, and yes, bowed again. Then he received then he received the sacrament and gave it to others. And many prayers being said, the solemnity of the consecration ended. The wa- this is the con- consecration of a cathedral, actually. The, the, the walls and floor, the roof and the fabric were then supposed to be sufficiently holy. <laughs> this, of course, is uh, uh, if this is different between, between Roman Catholicism, well, I think you couldn't put a, a, a sheet of paper between them. Worse still, he introduced other reforms, the, for example, the communion table. It's an important uh, aspect of uh, Christian, uh, the Christian service. The communion table, as it was known, was moved from its central position in the where it always used to be, to the east, to the chancery, and surrounded by rails. Moreover, it was no longer called the communion table, but the altar. That, my friends, is pure. Roman Catholicism, absolutely, absolutely, and and the the, the priests themselves, were, were, he himself dressed magnificently, magnificently, with silks and satin, and goodness knows what. The priests also they wore vestments to separate themselves from the ordinary people and and, and underline their superiority, underline their superiority as a caste of priests. Roman Catholicism, yet again, and this of course, this of course was uh, this kind of thing was. was uh, was was seen with absolute horror by many of the people who were forced to attend church. Don't forget that in those days you had to attend the Anglican church service. No, no choice in the other. You'd be severely punished. Punished if you did not. And this, this kind of thing was viewed with horror. Uh, people uh, suspected that the Lord, if he wasn't an Arminian uh, like the king. Uh, that that was in the best of case. He, he probably was uh, preparing the way for the Antichrist. That's the way that they would see it. They'd be absolutely horrified by this, and therefore there be a, there was a growth in opposition to Lord and all of his uh, his reforms. There was the resentment against this. You can't underestimate this. The resentment against this uh, movement towards Catholicism, this attempt to change the church stoke the fires of rebellion you better you better believe it, it was an important element in the in the future of revolution um but there were other elements now charles as i said as, as you well know needed cash needed money and wasn't too scrupulous about how he was going to get hold of the money he he couldn't uh, impose taxation legally anymore he dismissed Parliament and therefore he resorted to illegal taxation. Previously he tried the uh, the forced loan, which uh, at least economically was quite uh, profitable. Now he introduced other measures, all kinds of ancient taxations were revived, such as uh, a tonnage and poundage, which is an ancient uh, tax given to the king for emergency purposes. When Parliament couldn't be uh, convened, I suppose... Uh, in order to, approve it. but but the, yes, but Parliament still had to approve this uh, tax, and there was no approval from Parliament because there was no Parliament. Therefore, this was an illegal tax. Other methods he used, for example, uh, if you earn more than uh, I think uh, forty pounds a year, you, you you had to become a, a, a knight, you know, sir so, so and so so or oh, one hundred and forty, I think it might have been a certain amount of money anyway. You had to be, you had to have you, you had to apply to become a knight, which of course was a means of raising cash. A bit like the Roman Empire when uh, you were uh, forced to become a senator and you pay a large amount of money to the emperor, which somebody once cracked, that somebody had been exiled into the Senate. So these were all stunts, different means of raising cash. There were many other, uh, the most unpopular of all was uh, ship money. Now, this was not a new tax. This was a a well-known tax. It went back to the Middle Ages. And yes, the king did have the right to raise ship money, again, in emergencies, for war purposes, particularly to defend ports against the deprivation of pirates and other raiders from the sea. Each port was supposed to raise a certain amount of cash to pay for warships in order to defend the, the coastline. Yeah, but Charles uh, not only uh, imposed this ship, uh, this uh, uh, ship money, without any uh, without any uh, reason for it, without any emergency. He also, for the first time, and this was an entirely uh, new thing, this was an innovation. He imposed it on 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 every city and town in the land, whether or not they were on on the sea. It couldn't be threatened by pirates very well in an inland uh, city, but they all had to pay the ship money, including London and, and Bristol. All the cities had to pay uh, this, this tax, which was bitterly resented and it was uh, opposed. It was opposed. Now let's be clear on this also. These taxes didn't only affect the rich. They affected everybody, they affected the poor. In fact, the weight of taxes this is not generally realized. The weight of this taxation fell perhaps most heavily on the uh, on the poor people causing a lot of resentment. Uh, Brian Manning notes and I quote he gives some examples in, in the parish the parish of Enfield in, in, in Middlesex a group of young men led the opposition to the ship money in 1638 and their complaint was that the sheriff had altered altered the assessment so as to ease the burden on the wealthy landowners in, in the country forcing it all the, to fall all the more heavily, on the young men and farmers in other words that's a class question for, for it fell heavily on the poor and in this way as manning said thus the middle and poorer sort of people had grievances not only against the government of king of charles the 1st but also against against uh, the nobility gentry and the richer classes in general so th- there's already an element of class war present and a ferment among the general population not only the uh, not only the the wealthy he, he goes on to say this again from from Manning when the sub when when the subsidy men of Middlesex and Westminster were urged to comply they answered with a tumultuous shout of a parliament a parliament else no subsidies now that's inter- an interesting point you can see here are the question of the resistance to illegal taxation and the demand for a parliament democratic revolutionary demand in the context is beginning to take place. This is already in 1638. There were other reasons. Charles uh, revived or, 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 or gave extra powers then to the Star Chamber. The Court of the Star Chamber was established I think under Henry Eighth and Tudor times and it was entirely a court that was entirely under, under the control of the king which could inflict the most brutal punishments on any citizen without trial, for any offense real or, or imaginary. It was, it was above the law, this uh, terrible uh, car, uh, court of, of, of the Star Chamber. And by God, they inflicted punishments. There was a, a, a number of cases, but for example, there was a man called William Prynne, very well known figure at the time. He was a lawyer, a very uh, learned man and a very courageous man, and a very stubborn and obstinate man, and a devout Puritan who couldn't stomach these reforms. And he wrote repeated pamphlets denouncing them, denouncing the king, denouncing the government, denouncing Lord, <clears throat> Lord in particular. One of these pamphlets, it's quite a long thing, I think it was about a thousand pages, can't imagine it, was against, um, I think, theatres and uh, plays and uh, dancing and music and this kind of thing. He was a a Puritan in every sense of the word. And this was taken to be a veiled attack, not so veiled, on the Queen and the King, who, of course, participated in these things. He was punished, again, by the uh, Star Chamber. He was punished by a fine of 5,000 pounds. That's a colossal amount of money. How much? I said, that must be several millions of pounds today. 5,000 pounds, stripped of all his uh, titles and so on and so forth dismissed from his his work his job his, uh, his profession in uh, the University of Oxford and uh, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and also sentenced to be uh, to be to have his ears cropped. that was a delightful little method that they had. It cut your ears off. Yes, you could have your ears cut off your nose slit I think his nose also was split you could have your tongue bored with a hot iron. For any offence of, uh, in this case it was just what we would consider the freedom of expression of publishing a pamphlet, that's all. Yes, he was subject to this barbaric uh, treatment. And then into the bargain, if that wasn't enough, uh, 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 sentenced to permanent life imprisonment. Imagine that. And even when he was in prison, he still was a courageous man, he still wouldn't give in. He still continued to publish seditious works from his prison cell for which he was tried again, uh, uh, find a further 5,000 pounds. They couldn't uh, sentence him to any more imprisonment because he was already in prison for life. But there was a little bit of his ears still left. They didn't quite remove all of his ears the first time, so they made a thorough job. Second time, they removed all of his ears. must have been very excruciatingly painful, if you can imagine it. And he was branded on both cheeks with a hot iron, SL, Seditious Libeler. Yes, that was the kind of treatment that people, not just Plain, many people suffered the similar fate. There were a whole series of people that were well-known, considered to be martyrs and heroes, like uh, uh, the, the minister Alexander Leighton, John Bastwick, a, f- a physician, Henry, Bur- uh, Henry Burton, a clergyman. I these were f- famous cases. They all suffered a similar type of punishment to William Plain. And there's one case I would like to draw your particular attention to. This would have been in 1638, I believe. Just imagine the scene. You're standing in a street in London, and a young man, I don't know, not very not very old, yeah, maybe 20, I don't know, perhaps less, has been sentenced by the Star Chamber for the crime of issuing a pamphlet, a seditious pamphlet, criticizing the King and Lord and so on and so forth. He is sentenced to be dragged through the streets of London tied behind a cart and whipped all around the streets of London from the from the fleet to prison to the uh, to, to the palace of Westminster that's quite some time, quite some kilometers Sadly he, whipped, he was whipped and beaten until the blood streamed off his torn back must have been in a, in a state of great pain And he did not give up all the time he was going along. He continued, if you can believe this, under these terrible, horrific conditions, he continued to distribute this seditious pamphlet to the Passover. And there were many of them. People flocked to see this. Crowds, and that's significant, crowds and crowds of people, ordinary Londoners, lined the streets to see this spectacle, this disgusting spectacle, this savage spectacle. And he continued to do this he continued in his defiant attitude, to eventually collapsed exhausted. he collapsed. I imagine he was slumped on the pavement, covered in dust and blood, so bad in such a bad state that even his tormentors felt sorry for him. They, they began to feel sorry for him and they said, "Look for goodness sake, give up, will you give up and uh, just say you're sorry, just say you're sorry and uh, this will end." he refused. he refused. And therefore the torment continued until he reached Westminster, where he was put in the pillory. You know, the pillory is this block where your hands and uh, and head are inserted into the block and it's then locked and you're there, you're left there for hours on end. Hours on end of of suffering. And he still continued, even in the pillory, he continued to shout his defiance and preach and uh, harangue the crowds until eventually the, 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 the sheriff said, no, no, we can't have this. They had orders from the star changer, stop his mouth, which they did by cramming a a filthy rag into his mouth again. They gagged him and even then he didn't give up. He expressed his his, his defiance by by stamping his feet and uh, gesticulating with his hands, absolutely defiant. In the end, they decided to put him into prison and they punished him because again, they offered him, they repeatedly offered him, will you relent? Will you repent? Will you give up? He refused, and he was thrown into the, the worst possible thing. Something he said was worse than, than than the beating that he received. He was thrown into a filthy, dark, disgusting uh, dungeon, and he was left with the, hardly any food to eat. He nearly died. Actually, he said it was far worse to be in that stinking hole. It was far worse. Than anything that any any other torture that they inflicted on him, he was kept there for quite a long time until eventually he was freed by the revolution. He was freed by the revolution, by the people. The name of this young man, you might have heard of him, was John Lilburn, One of the leaders of the Levellers, a very important uh, component of the revolutionary movement that uh, that began to exist at this time. You see, what we what we must understand here is that, that on the surface of it. Charles is one. And on the surface of it, he's got control. He and Lord and the Queen and Stratford have got the, the entire kingdom sewn up. And this continued for 11 long years. 11 years of tyranny. Yes. It, so that's what it seemed like on the surface. and It seemed as if it was going to go forever. If you've been around after that time, mean, many people would despair. In fact, many people did despair including Oliver Cromwell. I see this young uh, landowner in uh, East Anglia. Many people emigrated to America. That's where you got the uh, the Mayflower and the, the Pilgrim Fathers. They, they emigrated as political refugees and religious refugees to practice their religion and their beliefs in a, in a foreign land a long way away. And Cromwell was, was considering going to America before the revolution broke out and then all his plans... Uh, changed so it was a very dark very dark period and yet despite all the appearances of power and that uh, this was this was going to continue this regime was going to continue forever you know my friends it's um, very often you, you think that uh, nothing will ever improve nothing will ever change we stuck with these people. we stuck with the ruling class. we stuck with the reactionary government and stuff. Stuck by John, Boris Johnson. Stuck with uh, what's his name across the pond? Can't even remember. Trump, <laughs> Donald Trump. Yeah, but it's not true. You might have thought in 1917, you, the Russian people were stuck with the Tsar. They were not, you know. They were not. Or that the French people were stuck with Louis Louis the Sixteenth. Uh, they were also not. And that was the case here also. You know, dialectics teaches us that sooner or later things turn into the opposite. Things turn into the opposite. And uh, this was the case here. You know, there's an analogy here with uh, those of you that are acquainted with ancient literature, with uh, Greek tragedy. You know, Greek tragedy is a famous uh, a very famous uh, part of world literature, and in a Greek tragedy, you always get a tyrant, a central figure, well, he may be, maybe more or less sympathetic or he may not be, but a central figure with colossal power who rises in, in, in a meteoric way to, till he, he, he reaches the, the, the peak, reaches the peak of his success, and then precisely at the peak comes the downfall. And in Greek tragedy, the downfall is, is always brought about by what is known as hubris. It's a Greek word meaning excessive self-confidence, arrogance, If you think. the arrogance of power, if you like. These guys think that they've they, they, they got it all wrapped up and that uh, they have everything under control. They all had that delusion. Yes, yeah, so Lord had that delusion after all. Uh, who could challenge the great uh, archbishop? You'd end up very badly if you attempted to do so. Or who could challenge the king and the queen? Ditto, repito. But no, this hubris was the cause, an important cause of their downfall. They went too far. In the end, they went too far. And King Charles made a bad bad error of judgment, a very serious error of judgment involving Another nation, which we have not discussed, uh, we will discuss it next time, that's Scotland. That's Scotland, he made a bad mistake when he tried to inflict, he and Lord, in their hubris, in their excessive self-confidence, attempted to impose the same rigid uh, system of uh, church government in Scotland that they successfully imposed in England. Yes, they thought they would get away with it, but they didn't with very explosive revolutionary consequences, as we shall see.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, Please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.